night, psychology nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host of Psychology and Stuff. And I'm really excited to bring back a great guest, a psych and stuff all-star, to talk about self-regulation and the brainy brain. First, though, I'm going to ask you to do something very important for me. So if you like psychology and stuff, and I suspect you do because you're listening, it'd be weird if you tuned in, even though you don't like it. Um, But if you like psych and stuff, I want you to go ahead and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will help other people find the show. So please, if you like us, let other people know by giving us that rating. With that, today I'm bringing back my brain guy for an episode about a recent article. Dr. Jason Cowell is a cognitive neuroscientist here at UW-Green Bay. He runs the Neuroscience Lab. He teaches courses on social, cognitive, and affective neuroscience, otherwise known as SCAN. You've heard him here before. He's been here talking about schizophrenia. He's been here talking about autism. He's talking about sleep. He uh, was a guest of I want to say a failed guest on the episode on uh, the the fantasy cocktail party. I was episode. a failed guest on that. Yes, you were. I thought you were talking about the fear episode. No, I, I felt like it, I felt like it was decent on that. Yeah, one, you so were great on the fear episode. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Um, I just listened to it yesterday. Actually, that's weird that I forgot about. Um, he is going to talk about this recent article titled "I Got to Get It Out" because I'm going to mess it up if I don't. Neural substrates of inhibitory control maturation in adolescence. How's it going, Dr. Cal? It's going great. How are you doing, Dr. Martin? I'm doing really, really well, and I'm glad you are here. So we got to – I want to just uh, banter for a second yeah. because um, new vice chair of the psychology program this year at UW-Green Bay. That's right. Still running the neuroscience lab. Running the neuroscience lab, uh, doing some really cool cross-cultural research with Dr. Sao Sensaki where we have a National Institutes of Health grant to look at – the brain as it's maturing and going into empathy and morality here and Japan. So nice. and you were in Japan project. for a couple of weeks. This for a couple summer, of weeks right? this summer, setting up an EEG lab so we can test kids over there as well. Very very cool. And Dr. Senzaki, who has been a guest on this show as well a couple yes. times, she actually won the episode that you. She did. She, Wait, no, 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 she no, did. no. Georgina. She did. actually lost the most. Yeah. So I, I feel <laughs> she like took, she took third. You're right. There it is. Okay. So um, yeah. So uh, you're right. Georgina Wilson Dungeon won that episode but well maybe a rematch is in order when Sawa comes back um yeah so she is there in japan she is collecting she's actually data. collecting data and testing kids right now um well right um, now she's probably asleep because it's true the statement middle because of the time there, change right? all right yeah. well in a theoretical world she's <laughs> testing them right now yes very cool so that is awesome and i can tell you right now i hope that when the results are back that you two will come on the show to talk about it absolutely so very morality cool. and kids i'm in very nice so um this episode we want to talk about this article pretty recent publication right just two th- another 2019 in uh, what trends in neurosciences yeah. is the journal I need you to, to, I guess, start by translating that title into a language that I can understand. (laughs) Yeah, so this article came out. It's actually – it's more of a review article of the recent literature from both humans and actually macaque monkeys having to do with – how the brain is developing to support our self-regulatory abilities and specifically across adolescence or the equivalent of adolescence in macaque monkeys. When is that? 
um, uh, that starts, I think puberty starts around three to four years of age in okay. macaques. So between about four and six years of age is usually their nice. the equivalent of their teenage years. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's. That's when they get their driver's license. That's when they get their, that's <laughs> when they, that's when they start risk taking, but actually they do, it turns out. Nice. Uh, Very cool. So I glanced at this article because in most of my classes, one of the things that people resonate with the most is having to control themselves. You know, you're coming in as a college student, you're going, all right, I have these goals, I have these things that I want to do. How do I prep all of my actions towards that goal? It's a larger field called executive function, uh, which sounds a lot like a business term, and that's purposeful. Uh, It's this idea of uh, the CEO of our body that is taking information from all of the different uh, departments, uh, making decisions, and then um, putting those into our actual actions. So that's an anthropomorphization. But at the same time, that's how we think about executive function. This specific article is dealing with a subpart of executive function called inhibitory control. Inhibitory control is kind of, if I'm asking you to do something and you, and you do something repeatedly, repeatedly, and then I say, all right, but, but now we have to do something different. Now you have to do something that's different from what you've been doing, different from what you usually would do, something where you have to stop yourself. That's called inhibitory control. So you have to stop yourself from doing what you've been doing, a prepotent response. You have to switch to something that's more adaptive, something that's more appropriate for this new setup. So if you can, like, walk me through, let's imagine we're doing a study on that with non-monkeys. Yes. What does that study look like? Well, okay. I mean, if I want to take it into the real world situations, then it's uh, dieting is a great example where I'm out at dinner and, you know, naturally I would want the steak and and fries, you know, steak frites. So one of my favorite dishes. But I'm trying to have a more adaptive goal, which is... You know, I'm I'm trying not to have that much cholesterol in my diet. So I go, all right, uh, you know, I should stop myself from immediately ordering the steak and I should switch to a new and adaptive concept, which is, well, maybe a chicken breast or a salad. We'll go with salad. Right. But the idea is I'm stopping myself from doing what my natural response would be and I'm switching to something more okay. adaptive. In the lab, that ends up taking on, and this is always the weird translation part, is you have to come up with tasks that get at these everyday life things, but in a controlled way that you can do it multiple times in the actual lab. So this article does a lot of an anti-saccade task. So what that basically is is that... um, a stimulus is flashed. So a picture is flashed on one side of the screen. And every time you see the picture flashed on one side of the screen, your goal is to look to the opposite side of the screen. So what happens is um, our natural inclination is when something is flashed, we shift our attentional focus to it. Here, you have to stop yourself from that shift. Remember that the new rule is to go to the opposite place and then to shift to the opposite place. It's a relatively hard task. It takes a decent amount of our cognitive abilities. And What's cool is that you see in humans a progression where it takes you a lot longer and a lot more resources to do it at a young age, but by adulthood, it becomes relatively automatic. We're pretty good at doing this. So you see this developmental progression, meaning it's really hard uh, in, you know, middle childhood at ages six to eight, and then suddenly we're pretty good at it by age 26 to 27. Why is that? So what I love about this article is that it's it's combining some of the research from human studies for the last 15 to 20 years uh, where we have to take non-invasive methods, where you have to put someone into an fMRI or you use a um, 
MEG machine or you use, um, in some of these cases, they're using DTI or diffusion tensor imaging to look at pathways. In all of those, we're trying to get a picture of what the structural or functional aspects of the brain look like. So if you're using an MRI, you're looking at just the structures. It's like a, a much fancier x-ray. If you're looking at DTI, one of the principles of brain development is that the circuits that we use constantly will oftentimes get a fatty layer around the outside of the axon of a neuron. And these fatty layers don't allow water to diffuse across them. So what we can do is go in and look at the structure of these fatty layers, um, meaning water won't diffuse across them. And so you can see how these are linked. And the more fatty layer that you have, the more myelination is what it's called, uh, that usually means you use that circuit more frequently. So that's part of how the brain develops. It's mm -hmm. the use it or lose it principle, but also we become more efficient at the things that we constantly use. So this plays out in a really weird way, which is we tend to see maturation of your more affective systems. So your emotion processing systems, your emotion, your emotion understanding systems, um, formerly called the limbic system, but it's really the limbic system plus a couple of other areas that are subcortical. Um, that actually seems to have adult-like efficiency, uh, decent myelination to the networks within it, by right around pre-puberty to pubertal ages. So mm -hmm. you're, you're starting to get adult-like abilities to experience and understand the emotions of others right. by pre-puberty. The problem is the other network, which is kind of, it's always thought to be a down-regulatory network, but it's from your prefrontal cortex to your parietal lobe. The connections that happen there um, are actually being fine-tuned across all of adolescence. And some of the earliest human studies seem to suggest that it reaches adult-like maturation around age 26. Right. Some are saying it's even in your young 30s now. But this is this thing of we have adult-like emotional processing and relatively immature structures to be able to support regulating that emotional process. Right. And by regulating, we, we mean controlling. Yeah, right? controlling. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's this inhibitory control. Right. It's stopping yourself from doing that dumb yep. thing that you shouldn't do. So, so kids are good at feeling them, and they're good at understanding how other people feel them, but they're not good at stopping themselves from expressing things in maybe a problematic way. Yeah, right? that's exactly it. And, I mean, it, it goes well into a lot of the anger literature, I'd assume, in, in mm -hmm. adolescence. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we see uh, in in adolescence is that ultimately, you know, there isn't a whole lot of we, – we actually don't find a lot of age and or gender differences when it comes to the experience of anger. And so you'll see people at all ages experience anger in, in similar amounts and similar frequencies, even in similar intensities. It's what they do when they're angry that tends to differ over time and at different ages, but also different genders. And so you'll see, um, you know, and some of this has to, isn't necessarily a self-regulation thing because they're not even trying to regulate it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes the gender differences, for example, have nothing to do with the capacity to regulate. It has to do with maybe the willingness to regulate. Or even the knowledge that you should regulate in yep. the first place. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So we see that, you know, males aren't taught to regulate their anger the same way females are. Um, um, and so it ends up looking like uh, maybe an impulse control problem when yeah. that isn't necessarily uh, what it is. Um, but we do see that, you know, adolescent males, um, early adult and males are the most likely to express their anger in those maladaptive ways, which is pretty consistent with what you're with what you're 
of what we're finding here. Yeah, and that's so the article is really walking through both humans and macaque monkeys because one of the questions is is this uniquely human? Is this period of increased risk taking and sensation seeking and all of that uniquely a human enterprise? In that um, it, this is an older hypothesis called the dual systems hypothesis, but it's that we have one type of system that's maturing early for emotion processing and one type of system that's maturing later for um, self control and self regulation, and that it's the discrepancy and the maturation of these that yields this period of adolescent angst and an inability to control the kinds of emotions that are happening. And they're linking this quite a bit in the article to uh, sensation-seeking or risk-taking behaviors that are that are present in most adolescent uh, humans, but they're also trying to look at it and go, hey, maybe this happens in, uh, in macaques. Maybe this happens in non-human primates. So what does that look like? Um, because in non-human primates, you can do other types of neural methods to really get a little bit more fine-tuned on where these networks are. And it turns out uh, it's really similar. It turns out that this, this period of adolescence, which I found fascinating, uh, the, or the equivalent of adolescence in macaque monkeys, seems to mirror that uh, the kind of dual systems that we're talking about in humans where there's uh, earlier maturation of emotional type systems and later maturation of self-control based systems. And there's a period where they are more likely to engage in risky type behaviors. And so it's this fascinating thing that seems to be across some levels of, of different species. And I think that's an interesting thing to, to start to consider, which is we think of self-control as something uniquely human. Uh, it goes all the way back to aspects of philosophy where it's, you know, weak, weakness of will was one of the Aristotelian aspects of self-control. And it's this thought that uh, this is a uniquely human concept. And it turns out it might not be from a neurobio okay. level. So what's the what's the explanation? And, and we may not have an answer to this. So I'm, I know I'm putting on this path. What's the explanation for why some aspects of emotional development happen quicker than others. Like, do we have a sense for why, why you can feel them and, and understand them better than you can control them in adolescence? Yeah. I mean, so the, the understanding of emotion is tied more to slightly different systems. So that's, mm -hmm. um, that's even more of the, the perspective taking. That's the um, knowledge of self and others, knowledge of consequences, et cetera. Uh, it ties a lot into, into the research on empathy, which seems to suggest there's a couple of critical hubs that are important. And part of that is an area in the middle of your prefrontal cortex called the medial PFC. Um, it seems like especially the ventral medial PFC or VMPFC is um, – highly activated in late adolescence through college and in adults when you're trying to um, reference the self. So when you're trying to figure out um, how this pertains to you or uh, what kinds of implications this has for you. So we've, we've got this area that, it, that is maturing, but maturing over the course of it. Um, and maturation, a lot of us think of maturation as, well, how many neurons are there? And it turns out that's not at all what's meant by neural maturation. In fact, the most neurons you will have, well, the most neurons and the most synapses that you will have, so connections between the neurons, over your prefrontal cortex, uh, one longitudinal study suggested it's, I think it's between 8 and 10 years of age, is actually the thickest that uh, your prefrontal cortex will ever be. 
It's the period of adolescence that's all about pruning it. It's about creating a more efficient system. So not just a lot being there, but it being that much more efficient. And that's where these differences start to come in emotion processing versus emotion control, is you have to have a pretty fast and efficient system to control these relatively quick um, emotion expressions or feelings that we tend to have. Um, one of the, the crazy pieces, though, is you see, some have argued, you see the very start of self-control in something like an A not B task, which is a really common task used in infants. And it's um, right around a year of age, you start to see infants pass this where you're constantly hiding an item uh, in one kind of, in, in one location. And then in front of them, you hide the item in another location. So you hide it in the B location instead of the A location. And uh, infants at six, seven, eight months of age keep going to the original location. It's they, they can't stop themselves from going where they constantly have been going. And by about a year of age, they start to shift towards this other thing. And so that's the earliest hint of self-control. Then at age three, four-ish, you start to get uh, what's called cool self-control or cool executive function, which is if it's not particularly emotional, you can start to engage in self-control. You can start to be flexible in, the, in switching between different rules. Uh, you can start to engage in some level of inhibitory control as a lot of it, is, it doesn't have to do with your own emotions. You can even start to, um, you know, have working memory. So uh, have a certain amount of things in your brain, work with them at the time, and come up with, with more complete decisions at the time. All of those are kind of sub-aspects of executive function that you start to see between in, in the preschool years, between three and five. You see rapid advancement in these as you start school. And one of the debates that's happening and is, you know, is it school that's causing this? It's, it's not that simple. It's not just this idea right. of school causing it because what's happening is all of the experiences that we're having as part of school at home and in potentially extracurriculars are yielding a different kind of brain development. They're yielding more efficiency because of the kinds of experiences we're having in processing self-control. And so that's the kind of development you see up until age eight. Then you start to see the fine tuning beyond that. Um, and there's some interesting new studies on what might matter. So let's let's think about this in terms of I always like to give people. Uh, so what are some of the take home messages of all this, whether as a parent or as a just a human being? So uh, part of what this tells me is that in some ways, like the the impulse problems or impulse control problems you might see from young kids and from adolescents are really they have more to do with simple biology yeah, than structural else. underpinnings that just aren't there right and so in some ways as a parent like asking a child like hey control yourself is is unreasonable it's like asking me to dunk a basketball like i just can't do it i mean you probably could but <laughs> we'll we'll see someday no i think you're absolutely right here which is uh, as a parent when you're trying to uh, figure out ways to teach your children self-regulation. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments that's been around since the early attachment literature, so talking about parent-child relations, mm -hmm. has been a concept that better co-regulation from parent to child leads to better self-regulation. Meaning, if you're a parent that's trying to 
create situations that your child has to self-control, but you're not putting the entire onus on them. You're not expecting mm-hmm. them to do the entire self-control. You're helping them. You're doing, uh, Vygotsky calls it scaffolding, but you're creating situations that are within a realm that they can actually self- control themselves. And you're slowly building more and more. This practice allows perfection. So practice makes perfect in this so, case. So give me an example of that. Like what's a situation where we might be able to do that? Yeah. So, um, well, an easy one is there's an old task called the delay of gratification task. This mm-hmm. is, everybody knows it as the marshmallow task, yep. it's by Walter Michel. Um, there've been some arguments now about whether, the, um, performance on the, on the delay of gratification task actually just had to do with socioeconomic status, had to do with the kind of environment and the kind of wealth right. that was in the environment you were raised in. In the traditional delay of gratification task, when it was originally done with four-year-olds, you could help them to self-control by creating situations that distract them. Mm -hmm. So instead of having them sit there in silence for 10 minutes staring at this marshmallow that was so attractive to them, what you do is encourage them to be creative. You encourage them to start to think of alternative things. You distract them to um, think of a different game. You have them singing a song or doing something that doesn't make it quite as relevant to them at that particular moment. And it turns out kids can get systematically better at holding off for 10 minutes if you introduce right. these kinds of creative strategies that reduce that content right. load that they have to stop themselves. So if I am at a restaurant and there's a wait, right? And yes. I go in. So I'm with my kids. I can just say, okay, kids, wait for five minutes, yeah. entertain yourself. You can see or, what happens as they sit there <laughs> and wait for their food to come. Right? And or, we know what happens. Yep. Or you, you go and get I the spy. coloring and you do I spy or you sit right. there, you do some kind of activity that allows for partial distraction. Well, at the same time, Uh, maintaining this aspect of self-regulation. As you build that, what you'll notice is they get increasingly better at using these kinds of self-regulation strategies themselves. Mm -hmm. You don't have to guide them as much. And over the course of time, they just automatically institute Mm -hmm. these strategies and then they're able to stop themselves for 10 minutes. Because ultimately, I mean, I I guess I would, as I I think about it, I mean, typically self-regulation in my self right does include some form of distraction yeah right? absolutely it, it includes me doing the thing that i'm ha- that i'm helping them do one of the handiest things i mean you look at any of the dieting literature you look at any of this and and a lot of the strategies are about uh replacing something with something else that might be healthier or mm-hmm. um taking a moment as you start to be hungry to drink a glass of water take a walk, and then come back and reflect upon it. It's some of these aspects that, that allow for distraction or uh, flexibility is, is another way right. to talk about it. Or, frankly, it's planning and organizing. If you start to teach kids about planning and organizing towards goals, then what you start to get are kids that have preset, hey, here's when I need to get my homework done so that I can go to this practice or this practice in order to make sure it's done for the next day. Sure, you're leading the way for the first several years, but this right. constant practice at it makes it more automatic. Right. That is fascinating. So I want to take this into the realm. So um, you oftentimes study, I know, kind of empathy and morality, and, and uh, I end up studying and teaching about kind of what happens when things go wrong, yeah. right? So because yeah. I teach uh, courses on psychopathology, and, and that's my training. One of the conversations I have with my students, um, usually at the end of the semester, is I think about like what is 
if we were to take all the problems in the diagnostic and statistical manual mental disorders and we were sort of to kind of, I don't use this term with them, but do a factor analysis on those problems and kind of come down to some of the basics, like what are the real problems human beings have in a smaller category or yeah. bigger but fewer categories than we have, impulse control would be a biggie. It's, I mean, it's a piece of many of the diagnoses within yep. the DSM. And, and even when it's not a formal piece, meaning a symptom or what the disorder is essentially named after, right? I mean, we have a category of impulse control disorders, yeah. um, but we also, it, it's relevant in other non-impulse control disorders like ADHD. It, it's relevant in a bunch of the personality disorders. Um, it's relevant in even to, in, I'd argue, maybe more indirect, passive ways and a lot of the emotional problems. So it it just feels like this really, like it's one of those things that as a parent, you just want your kids to get right. (laughs) So that's kind of the crazy piece, which is, yeah, if you talk about what goes wrong, oftentimes there are arguments that one of the first things that can go wrong has something to do with self-regulation or impulse control. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at it developmentally, you start to see cascades towards much more serious overall uh, clinical mental health disorders. And it's led a lot of people to try to look at, well, how could we intervene in this early? If we think that executive function or self-regulation, whatever you want to call it, is this early thing that kids have to have, how can we go in and do things? So uh, there's there's a study from about a decade ago that uh, Torkel Klingberg was running um, a working memory training. He thought, if I take a group of... Uh, individuals that are, I, I believe they were middle ch- uh, in middle childhood, so six to eight, I, I think, but I might be remembering wrong. Uh, if I take them and I bring them into the lab and for six weeks I train them in being able to, to work with things and have short-term memory aspects, will that translate into better overall self-regulatory behaviors? And so he actually compared individuals that uh, were diagnosed with ADD with a hyperactive secondary um, and on Ritalin versus non-medicated doing this training program and found similar results over the course of the six weeks in self-regulation. And so there's been an argument that training some aspects of working memory seems to help with self-regulation. The thing is, a lot of the studies that have dealt with specific aspects of EF, so um, working memory or just cognitive flexibility or just inhibitory control seem to affect that exact thing. So it's if you're training someone to be better at inhibitory control, they become better at tasks that require inhibitory right. control. But that's not really what we're looking for. Because self-regulation is something slightly more holistic. So some of the other groups have been looking at curriculum, for instance, that were introduced into, I think it was the Denver School District in the 1990s called Tools of the Mind. some of the reviews of this more holistic training that happened in preschool and kindergarten seem to suggest that uh, it, it's a it's a wider spread way to train self-regulation. Um, if you start to talk about interacting with others and you start to talk about taking other people's perspectives and you have activities that are about cooperation and all of that, you're getting at self-control, but you're getting at something much more broad. That seems to have long-term effects. The other ones that are interesting are uh, there's been some studies that have looked at early karate engagement, and the thought is uh, karate might offer a somewhat holistic sense of self-control as well, where it's bodily self-control, but also mental self-control because it's a key piece of it. There's some that have said circus performance has something similar, which is if you put kids into... uh, 
circus training early on, that combination of physical and mental well-being and control seems to blend well into long-term outcomes. Very interesting. So um, I'm just reflecting on circus versus other similar like gymnastics. I would uh, imagine gymnastics. I haven't seen a study on gymnastics, but I could see where gymnastics would probably be comparable. So you're telling me someone did a study on circus performers before they did a study on gymnasts? Is this what I'm to believe? Academics are weird people. <laughs> That's all I can say. I.e. they had access to a population there it of is. circus there it performers is. Yes. and did not have access to that a is exactly population it. That of gymnasts. That is exactly it. That is uh, fascinating. So I'm curious, one final question before we kind of wrap up this part of things. I'm curious about the... Um, the, the role of technology, because one of the things that I really see in my own children is how rarely, and this is true of me as well, like how rarely you and I are, and my kids are forced to wait for things compared to what things used to be like, you know, like even the difference in like, like kind of living in what I would call an on-demand world where you, you know, you finish a show and you don't have to wait a week for that show again. You just start the next episode a second later, you know, and I wonder even like, I mean, I would argue that like you're less likely to even have to wait at restaurants anymore, right? Because of call ahead seating and a host of other things. So what, what is the impact of that, of not being forced to wait the same way? Do we know? You know, there's some early hints, and not to sound old here with you, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's you think about a point when one of the easiest forms of uh, rehearsal or repetitive uh, aspects for working memory. So if you're trying to teach short-term memory and you're trying to say, all right, uh, remember the sequence of digits for 30 seconds. That was something that everyone practiced at less than 20 years ago. And it's because you were constantly trying to remember a phone number long enough to then go over and dial the phone. That's a set of practice that was so common that we had to become relatively good at it. Mm -hmm. And societally, we are starting to see slight differences in working memory type aspects. And it may, you can't make a causal statement necessarily, but it may be due to a lack of practice in this. So I see it when we're talking about uh, remembering, you know, digit span aspects where you're so used to remembering sequences uh, from memorizing phone numbers. When you just have to press on a person's name, it's a lot easier. You've taken away that working memory load. And in fact, that's what I would argue technology in general is doing, which is, you're right, it it takes away the patience aspect. You don't Mm -hmm. have to wait anymore. There's no delaying gratification in most cases. But also a lot of the critical practice that we used to have isn't there as much. I don't know what the implications are. I would say if we're taking a neurobio perspective that brain development is partially due to the kinds of experiences we're having, then it might mean that there are actual implications for the development of, you know, that prefrontal to parietal network and and how fine-tuned it is. Because if you're not having those experiences, it's possible that you don't develop the same type of network. So that's that's my worry long-term, actually, with a lot of this. I don't know, though. Hmm. That is fascinating stuff. So we should mention the article again. It is Neural Substrates of Inhibitory Control Maturation in Adolescence. It was published in Trends in Neuroscience. I'm going to do my best with the last names here. It's uh, Dr. Christos Constantinidis. Is that correct-ish? That sounds right. Okay, thank you. Um, And Dr. Beatrice Luna. Um, So thank you very much, Jason. Any other sort of final thoughts about any of this before we get to our game? 
No, I think we're pretty good on that. Awesome. So when we come back, we are going to ask Jason five questions. If you like this show, I hope you'll give my new show, Cannonball, with co-host Chuck Ryback a listen. Chuck and I talk about those things we consider or should consider canonical from across disciplines. From music to art to literature to video games, we cover it all by bringing in the experts. Our third episode just went live last week with Dr. Courtney Sherman and John Mariano talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was a lot of fun. You're going to love it. You can find it by searching for Cannonball, and that's Cannon with one N, so C-A-N-O-N-B-A-L-L, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Jason, we are back. Are you ready to play our game? Always. Awesome. Good. So we're going to play five questions, and here's what we're going to do. It's complicated, so stick with me. I'm going to draw questions from, I don't have a hat, and you can see that. They're yeah, just sitting on the table. They're just sitting. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to draw questions, uh, and uh, you're going to answer those questions. I'll do the best I can. All right. They're pretty hard. All right. Are you ready? Question number one. What kinds of hobbies and interests do you have outside of work? Uh... I sing a lot, so one of my big things is singing. Um, I haven't actually as much in the last year or two, but I used to do a lot of musicals. So, really? Um, yeah, I enjoy that, and I also like biking quite a bit. And lately, there's some pretty good surfing just south of Green Bay and Sheboygan, so I've been out surfing You've a bit. You've been out surfing, really? I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew the cycling and I knew the singing thing. Yeah. But, but surfing. Any, mm-hmm. any chance you're going to try and uh, audition for one of the community uh, musicals or things like that that we see in uh, Green Bay? And As you know, I have uh, just over a two-year-old daughter at home. Oh, okay. So uh, once she grows up a little bit, um, I, I may start to consider getting into some musicals. She should get to the age where she'll really be embarrassed of you. Yes, that that's, seems like the perfect that's ultimately time. the goal. Yeah, yeah. That's... so yeah, because right now she'll think it's cool, uh, or maybe in a few years she'll think it's cool, but then at a certain point she won't. I mean, that's just I sad. Are, are you at the point where? <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. Okay. I think my kids still think I'm cool. Um, Reese, my oldest, uh, he will um, he will still sort of laugh, but fakely at my puns. Tobin does just roll his eyes. Like I think he takes after his mom. That way. I, mean, <laughs> I have no comment. All yes. right, awesome. <laughs> I know better. Um, you know my puns are great. Yes. Uh, what's on your bucket list? Because you're getting up there now. You need to. What? <laughs> getting up there now? I'm in my thirties. You Jeez. will soon be older than me. Uh, what's on my bucket list? I've done a lot of the stuff on my bucket list. I wanted nice. to go to some place like Japan and got to do that already. Very cool. Um, so I still actually, I've wanted to go to Scandinavia for a while. I am Scandinavian. I've heard that uh, the Finland, Sweden, Norway trip is a fun thing to do. So I want to try it out. Very cool. I like the sound of that. That's a good one. Uh, tell us something about yourself that would surprise us. I'm I'm a pretty open book, so I'm not sure that much would surprise you. Um, and the surfing you know what? But okay, go karate. Ahead. Yes, I did 14 years of karate, so I I'm a pretty gentle person for those that know me. But yeah, I, I used to teach karate even. Uh, you know, earlier I meant to mention that when yeah, you because I did know that actually, but maybe the audience didn't. I uh, I meant to mention that, but then you distracted me with the circus. With sir- I mean, and that's all of a sudden. I have yeah. not done circus though, so that's that's very different. Yeah, well, you can. You, there's still time. So, <laughs> um, do you have a motto or a personal mantra? 
No. No, I wish I did. I, I'm just not that creative. I don't, do you have a motto or personal mantra? Uh, I, 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 go, no. I go through, yes, <laughs> I go through different variations of that. Uh, every now and then I'll just like grab onto like a, a philosophy that I'll hang on to for even months that I'll like let right. sort of guide my behavior. Most recently it was, uh, something along the lines of create the things you wish existed. Um, wow. I also, every now and then, so this is a, this is a little cheesy because it comes from a sitcom from the nineties when you were just a newborn, but I was in grad school, um, <laughs> called sports night. Um, and so We've talked about the show yeah, before. Yeah. Quo Vatimus means where are we going? Or at least it does according to the show. And so, and Aaron Sorkin and Aaron so. Sorkin. So it's possible that's not really what it means, but <laughs> I like to say to myself, where are we going every now and then just right. as a, a way of thinking about direction. So that's yeah. kind of inspiring. All right. Yeah, I, I wish so. I had something like that. We're going to end with a easy one. This is our last question. What is your favorite meal? Is it the steak and fries that you mentioned I, before? I do like steak frites. Yeah, that's uh, I in my postdoc. Uh, I had my my mentor was French and got me addicted to steak and fries, and it's just I don't know. It's really good. Nice. I'm always surprised when people. That's a thing that surprises me because I'm always surprised when people don't say pizza to that question. I just think because yeah. just categorically speaking, pizza just feels like the best meal. I mean. I realize that there's a lot of bias there, but I just feel like I like pizza so much. There's so many different variations. It is so of it. comforting. Like yeah. there's something familiar and comforting about it at yeah. all times. And I and you can do it in infinite ways. So true. Yeah. All right. Very good. That is going to do it for this episode, Jason. Special thanks to you, assistant professor of psychology here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, vice chair. Um, anything else you want to how can people find you if they want to know more about you Uh, they can find me on our website Uh uh, at UWGB Psych I also am the director of the Student Success Center so we have a heavy social media presence through uh, the the Student Success Center so you can find us uh, on Snapchat on Instagram on Facebook and it's UWGB Psych yep and Twitter. You forgot and Twitter. Twitter. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Also there. All those there. places. Yep. Uh, very nice. Yeah. So UWGB Psych and all those places. It is my pleasure to come on. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. I actually have no idea what we're going to do in our next episode. But uh, until then, I hope you will follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Psych and Stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at RyCMart. That's R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. Go there for additional information about psychology, ask questions, even suggest an episode. I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, who does all the things, and our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees. Uh, Kimberly just designed our really, really incredible Cannonball podcast art. I love it, and I love working with people like Jason, Kimberly, and Kate Farley. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep being amazing.